It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, we're focusing on race. Tensions in America are high after the death of George Floyd in police custody. Floyd, an African-American, died after a white police officer restrained him on the ground. Following Floyd's death, demonstrations have erupted around police brutality and race. In this poignant conversation, Ibram X. Kendi, a leading anti-racist voice, talks about how we can be better. Here's the show. Why is it so hard to have discussions about race in the United States? Ibram X. Kendi says you can't have a productive conversation unless you know the history of racism. Kendi founded the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. One historical trend, he says, is that racist progress follows racial progress. We're engaged in this struggle, right? This struggle between these two historical forces, racial progress and, and racist progress. At some point, there's going to be essentially a moment uh, in which this nation is going to have to choose. Today, he talks about how to be an anti-racist. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Why does racism exist? Is the root of it ignorance and hate? Ibram X. Kendi wanted to find out what causes someone to be racist and how racist policies develop. So he wrote the book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. History shows the root of racism isn't necessarily ignorance. Instead, it's self-interest, says Kendi. People have instituted racist policies because it made them money, because it got them elected or kept them elected. Uh, because it allowed them to excel in their professions, or it allowed them to maintain their cultural or professional life. Kendi speaks with journalist Jamel Hill about racist and anti-racist policies, how to talk about race, and how he grappled with his own racism. Here's Hill. Uh, Let's start there. Um, Explain the concept of being an anti-racist. So I think first and foremost, we've been led to believe that the sort of contrast is between racist and not racist. Uh, I'm sure you've heard someone say, I'm not racist. Anybody heard that? Uh, and, And so when someone says to me, I'm not racist, I typically respond, well, what is a not racist? Like, what does it mean to be not racist as opposed to racist? And typically people have never actually thought about that question. Uh, And it's also the case that typically people cannot even define racist. Um, And typically the concept of not racism is really an act of denial. And, um, And so if the contrast from racist is not not racist, does that make sense? It, it is, it is, it is anti-racist. And so really, when we sort of understand the contrast, and I'm speaking really about the contrast because it's hard to understand what it means to be anti-racist without understanding what it means to be racist. But, uh, you know, anti-racist ideas suggest that the racial groups are equals. Racist ideas suggest that certain racial groups are superior or inferior, better or, or worse than others. Uh, racist policies uh, yield racial inequity. Um, anti-racist policies yield racial equity. Um, racist people 
are, are people who are expressing uh, racist ideas or are supporting racist policies with their action or even inaction. And I say inaction because if you do nothing in the face of, of racist policies, then essentially since racist policies are more or less the norm, you're maintaining that norm um, of racism. Uh, while to be anti-racist is, is one who is expressing uh, anti-racist ideas uh, or supporting uh, anti-racist policies with their action. Can you give an example of an anti-racist policy or policies? Sure. Uh, we've been talking about one over the last few weeks, uh, reparations. Uh, you know, when you ask me um, about reparations, uh, you know, I say, how do you eliminate or even begin to eliminate the wealth gap in this country without reparations? And uh, how do you uh, eliminate a wealth gap that's actually growing according to projections? Uh, or even something like health care for all, or even Obamacare, which significantly increased the number of Latinx and African Americans uh, who had health insurance. These are policies that reduced racial inequities. Um, you know, most of us, and, and you've talked about this before in previous talks you've given, we have sort of been taught that, you know, the root of racism is ignorance and hate. But you have a much different definition or way of looking at racism. Um, so what is the root cause of racism um, in your mind? Sure. So in, in, in writing um, Stamp from the Beginning, which was a history of, of racist ideas, I essentially wanted to answer that question because I think we've been taught this sort of causal relationship that, that the sort of core that the cradle is ignorance and hate. In other words, ignorant and hateful people are the people who have produced racist ideas. They, they produce racist ideas because of their ignorance and hate. And, and then we've been taught that people who have these racist ideas are the people who've instituted racist policies, from slaveholding to Jim Crowing to uh, mass deporting and incarcerating. And we, we think it's because of their racist ideas that they are instituting and defending and supporting these policies. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And, and so I wanted to basically, in, in writing this history of racist ideas, I wanted to figure out, okay, is that true? Are the people who have produced, and I say produced as opposed to consumed for a very specific reason, right? The people who produced these racist ideas, did they produce them because of their ignorance and, and hate? And, and, in, and in researching this history and in contextualizing the emergence of different racist ideas over the course of, of American history, I, I found that the producers were actually a who's who of American minds, that these are some of the most brilliant, I mean, in terms of the way they've been categorized, uh, Americans in history. And, and even some of these people, uh, according to them, privately love black people. Or at least that's what they said, uh, based on their relationships with black people. Um, I'm not, I don't want to name names, but I think y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and so what I found, actually, was that instead of racist ideas leading to racist policies, I actually found racist policies leading to racist ideas. In other words, as, as many of you know, when, when you want to institute a racist policy, you typically have to make a case for that racist policy. 
right? And that case for racist policies is typically something to demean a particular racial group. When people resist your racist policy, you typically have to defend that resistance with racist ideas. Of course, black people are going to be 40% of the incarcerated population in this country, uh, even though they only make up 13% of the national population, because they're so criminal-like. That's a defense of the racist policies that led to the mass incarceration. And so I actually found racist policies leading to racist ideas. And I actually found the sort of core or cradle as good old self-interest, that, that people have instituted racist policies because it made them money, because it got them elected or kept them elected, uh, because it allowed them to excel in their professions or it allowed them to maintain their cultural or professional life. And, and then they produced these ideas to defend those policies, to justify those policies. And then Americans mass consumed those ideas. They, they started believing that, that Latinx immigrants were, were rapists and, and animals. And then that led them to become ignorant and hateful. Um, what you were discussing earlier, I, I often refer to it as the Sal's Pizzeria Theory. Uh, if you, any of you have seen Do the Right Thing, yes. Spike Lee asked John Turturro, how come you don't like black people and you call us, you know, and you have all these black people here on your wall? Like, There's a difference between how you individually may feel about a black person. Because uh, I always say the easiest thing in the world is to like a really cool, famous black person. Yeah. That's really easy. It's a whole different thing when you have to embrace us all as a group, right? Precisely. And there's no skin in the game. So you mentioned, you just hit on something about self-interest leading to sort of racist policy. Um, but what you've also discovered in your research is that a lot of the, the racist progress always follows the racial progress, right? And uh, I was reading today about a poll um, that was done, uh, that was in the Washington Post, where it said, uh, and this is, again, not me picking on a particular party, but this was how the research was defined, that 47% of Republicans think it's okay to refuse service to someone based on their race, religion, or sexual orientation. Um, that number has doubled since 2014, the last time they took this poll. And it's also uh, seeing increasing numbers among Democrats and among independents. Those numbers are 18% and 24% respectfully. I ask you, why does that, why is that the case? How do we go from, say, this racial nirvana people were in after electing Barack Obama to what we have now? Why is that progress often followed by even deeper and more defined and starker racism? So I think that that's actually a question I was sort of wrestling with in, in writing Stamp from the Beginning, because I think our generation, for instance, um, has dealt with mass incarceration, uh, has dealt with a series of different sort of issues that our parents' generation did not deal with. At the same time, our parents' generation was saying to us, well, you, had it, you got it better than we do. And we were like, well, and so it's been this constant generational conflict to a certain extent within the black community in which younger people are saying it's worse or it's still bad or it's worse than ever. And, and older people are saying, oh, no, it's, it, 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 there's no way it's, it's, it's worse than it was when I was coming up in, in Jim Crow. And, and, and in writing this history of racist ideas, I had to write a history of, of black America. And so I actually found that both positions were correct that it is, in fact, the case that we've had racial progress. But it's simultaneously the case that we've had racist progress. And, and to your question, 
how that happens is when anti-racist um, activists and, and, and Americans have essentially been able to break down barriers, um, barriers of policies that benefited people um, and, of course, excluded other people. Those who benefited from those barriers did not just, like, fly home to their, um, to their states or to their golf courses in Palm Beach, not to pick on a particular party either. Um, and... <laughs> You know, they, they stayed and figured out new and ever more sophisticated ways to exclude people, to suppress people, to oppress people. Uh, and I think we've seen that, for instance, with, 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 with the ways in which voter suppression over the last 40 years have gotten ever more sophisticated, right? Um, voter ID laws are a much more sophisticated form of voter suppression than poll taxes, right? And, and so I think that I think that I wanted to sort of show that um, and, and how that fundamentally at its core we're, in, we're engaged in this struggle, right? This struggle between these two historical forces, racial progress and, and racist progress. And, and at some point, um, there's going to be essentially a moment uh, in which this nation is going to have to choose because essentially we've been trying to sort of uh, have both elements simultaneously uh, driving the sort of history of this country. And eventually, it's, it's essentially not going to work. As many of you guys know um, that are sitting in the audience, and I'm sure, obviously, as you know as well, whenever we try in this country to have a conversation about race, it goes absolutely nowhere. You know, <laughs> I would probably have a more productive time just banging my head against a brick wall. <laughs> so why are these conversations that we try to have about race why are they so unproductive? Oh, man. Where's my... Uh... Yeah, I know. <laughs> just get your book out and just start reading it right exactly. up here. Yeah. <laughs> so I think first and foremost, this isn't in any sort of order. I think you have everyone imagine themselves as an expert on race um, because they're racialized. Um, and so what happens is it's... it's, 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 it's we, we even, for instance, have difficulty talking about medicine. <laughs> At the same time, we recognize there's a such thing as medical researchers and doctors, right? So can you imagine if, generally speaking, we didn't even consider doctors to have expertise, how difficult it would be for us to sort of have a conversation, a difficult conversation, um, about, about medicine. And with that being said, part of the difficulty is you have so many people who refuse to accept their diagnosis. And you have so many institutions who refuse to accept that they are racist um, and who constantly, of course, want to defend themselves, uh, even though those whose expertise um, is assessing them is essentially making the case how and why they're racist. And I think people do not want to be identified as racist partly because of the way that we've actually defined it. And what I mean by that is, I think in many ways, people believe that a racist is like a fixed category. It's like an identity. It's essentially who you are. And combined with that, we've been led to believe that a racist is fundamentally a bad person. And so I'm a good person, so I'm not racist. Uh, and I don't want to have that sort of tattoo on myself for the rest of my life. When in fact, at least I define racist and even anti-racist as 
as not a fixed category. It's not necessarily who you are, but what you are doing in the moment. And, and the reason why that's critical is because there's so many complex people. So when it comes to criminal justice, they're, they're racist. But when it comes to the environment, they're anti-racist. And when it comes to healthcare, uh, they're anti-racist. But then when it comes to education, and uh, they're, they're racist. And so people are deeply complex. Um, and, and so I really think we should define it based on what a person is saying and, and, and doing in the moment. I also think that there's, there's a lot of stakes to, um, to sort of this conversation, right? And, and there are people who benefit, obviously, from racism. I believe that people in certain ways have actually been misled into believing how much they benefit. And what I mean by that is, so you take, for instance, white middle income and, and white working class and white, white poor people. Do they benefit from racism compared to black middle income people and black working people and black poor people without question? But do they benefit from racism as much as black upper income, white upper income people? No, they do not. There are different levels of benefit for racist policies. And typically, white upper-income people, particularly those who are behind these policies, are typically trying to convince white middle-income people that they benefit from racism more than they would a more egalitarian society. And so now, as a result, you have so many white people dying of whiteness, to use the the title of, of one recent book, without necessarily realizing how and why that's happening. You also have black... Um, elites uh, who who are seeking to distance themselves from the black poor, who are reinforcing racist ideas of the black poor, who imagine that that's how they ascend in this society, when in fact studies have shown that as you rise on the economic ladder as a black person, the more likely you are to experience racism. And those racist policies are justified based on racist ideas about the black poor. And so you have people supporting the very ideas that are actually harming their own economic ascent. So I'm saying this all to say, because I can go on and on about this. (laughs) And we will let you. (laughs) We have been so misled and manipulated about the way race and racism operates in this country that so many people think it's in their self-interest when in fact it's really not. One of the things you've also talked about, I think this is uh, before you wrote about the history of racist ideas, that you had to deal with your own racism. Um, Share that experience and and what exactly, what racist ideals were you struggling and trying to um, come to terms with? Sure. So, um, first of all, I'll say that a lot of how to be an anti-racist is is me expressing that. is, is me really expressing this sort of journey that I had to partake in. Um, really, in many ways, being raised in a uh, black middle class that really had just arrived until the middle class in the 1980s, um, and black middle income people who were simultaneously raised in civil rights and black power, and so who knew the way in which racism functioned but simultaneously imagine that their arrival into the middle class was based on their own hard work. Uh, And that's contrasting themselves with who the black poor. And so in many ways, growing up 
uh, in those spaces, I was led to believe as a black middle income person that I was superior behaviorally to the black poor. I mentioned this distinction between black elites and the black poor because these are two racialized groups. These are two racial groups, right? And so whenever we take any group in racialized, we say the black poor as opposed to the poor, we're essentially imagining or creating a racial group. Um, I also was, nev- I was not raised in any way, um, in any sort of aggressive way to think of black women as equal to black men. Uh, I was not raised in any aggressive way to think of uh, black, the black queer community, white queer community, uh, as equal to black heterosexuals. Uh, I was not raised to, I mean, you know, I can sort of go on and on. There's so many different groups within the black community, let alone other communities, that are degraded and demeaned that even us, too, have been sort of manipulated into believing that that, that is the case. And, and so in many ways, I had to come to grips with that. Um, I had to sort of look in the mirror um, and I had to recognize the ways in which I had sort of internalized uh, racist ideas. Um, and, and that's why I actually sort of argue in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist that, that internalized racism is the real black-on-black crime. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Race has divided our country since colonization. The history of the U.S. from the Civil War to Jim Crow and Black Lives Matter is defined as conspicuously by racial strife as it is by great achievements. So what does racial progress actually mean in practice? How can political, business, and community leaders confront the true reality of racism in the U.S.? And how do you fight not just prejudicial policies, but prejudicial minds? Hear from leading voices on race on our website, aspenideas.org. Just look for the collection, Progress and Struggle, Race in U.S. Society. Find it on aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Jamel Hill. Uh, I want to go back to something you you said uh, a moment ago about how a lot of times these conversations we have about race are unproductive because everyone fancies themselves as an expert in this area. And um, I know a particular frustration for me, and I know a lot of people of color, this is a frustration, is that sometimes when we have those conversations, we are simultaneously educating at the same time. And I just feel like if you're going to have a conversation about race, it's just about 10 basic facts I need you to know <laughs> before we have this conversation. And so I ask you, the, um, the expert, the doctor, um, is it, can you even have a conversation about race if you lack a knowledge about racist history? No, you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I Why think, is that important to know that history going into these conversations? You can expand on that as, as well. Well, I think... I think in order to, typically when we have conversations about race, we're, we're having conversations about our racialized world, our society, racial disparities today, the reasons for that, um, what some people would say, what's wrong with this or that particular racial group. And, and every time we're, we're engaged in, in those conversations, we're really having a historical sort of conversation without necessarily knowing it. And, and we're constantly talking about why this is the case, right? I mean, even reparations and the dis- discussion we've been having as a nation uh, for the last few weeks, if anything, the last 150 years, has been a historical discussion, right? 
Um, and so I think history is, is absolutely central. Um, but what I also think is absolutely critical, and even more critical than history, um, is how we define terms. And so typically, we're having a conversation with somebody, and we have completely different definitions of racist, to give an example, um, and, or even race. Uh, and, and how can we have a productive conversation with differing definitions? Uh, clearly, when, when someone who writes um, or tells a New York Times reporter what's, the wrong, what's wrong with the term white supremacy, and then later in that very same story says, I'm not racist, clearly he has a different definition of a racist than I do, <laughs> right? And, and, and many of you do. And, and I think we have to have a basic definition of, of racist. So when I encourage people to have conversations with their crazy uncle um, about Always how and why he's racist, yeah. I actually encourage people to first have a discussion with him or even her about simply defining the term racist. That you can't even talk about race with that person without having a definition of that term. You can't call that person a racist when they have a completely different definition of what a racist is, or they don't even know what a racist is, they just know that what? They're not it. Which doesn't make any sense, right? How can you know you're not racist and you have no idea, you can't define racist in a very simple way to apply it to yourself. But don't get No, upset. no, I mean, it's the same as when, <laughs> when people, when you ask them if racism exists and they say yes, but you can give them, they don't want to name any examples of it. They just make it seem like it's an abstract con- yeah. us concept that's out there in the universe bubbling somewhere, but it's not there. It's like, what? Exactly. It's got to exist somewhere, right? Um, another interesting thing that, uh, that you have discussed and talked about is the difference between segregationist ideas and assimilationist ideas. Can you explain what that difference is? Sure. So in, in writing Stamp from the Beginning, I, I thought that ultimately I was going to write this sort of two-way debate over the course of American history between racist ideas and anti-racist ideas, as I just sort of described. Those ideas suggesting that the racial groups um, are equals and other ideas suggesting racial hierarchy. But the more I researched specifically racist ideas, the more I realized that actually there have been two groups of racist ideas constantly challenging each other, constantly debating each other. And so really stamped is a three-way debate, two kinds of racist ideas, segregationist and assimilationist ideas, um, constantly sort of battling anti-racist ideas. So the easiest way to understand the difference between segregationist and assimilationist ideas is the nature versus nurture debate. So segregationist ideas uh, typically state that black people, let's say, are inferior by nature. Um, Basically, we are genetically inferior, biologically inferior, permanently inferior. Assimilationist ideas typically state that, that black people are inferior by nurture, that we're all created equal, but black people were, were, were born and bred in, in barbaric Africa. Uh, black people were born and in, in bred in those barbaric, broken black homes or those barbaric, broken black communities or those pathological cultures. And, and so because we're all created equal, assimilationists would say, and because their inferiority was nurtured, we can also nurture away their inferiority. We literally can civilize and, and, and develop 
uh, black people. And, 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 and essentially, racial progress from the standpoint of assimilationists is civilizing black people. While segregationists are like, you can't civilize them. <laughs> it's impossible. You can't. They're, they're by nature stupid. They have a stupid gene. So how do you think you can ever make them intelligent? It is impossible. And, and assimilationists are like, no. Remember what Thomas Jefferson said. We're all created equal. We can do this. Look at that black person who was raised in, in that white home. Look at how great and civilized uh, they became. And so anyway, this has been a back and forth discussion. And, and assimilationists are, were, were peopling abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, many liberals, progressives, even radicals uh, are assimilationists. And, and, and I think one of the things I wanted to do with, with Stamped is show that fundamentally it doesn't matter how and why you explain a particular racial group, in the case of Stamped, black people are inferior. If you say a particular group, and I keep saying group, is inferior, you're expressing a racist idea. Now, is there, um, with assimilationist ideas, is that similar to the sort of respectability ideal that we have to, um, that our humanity is conditional? That we have to, you know, you, people will treat you better if you pulled your pants up, that kind of thing. Are those very similar? Yes, and, and so in, in Stamp, from the beginning, I call it uplift suasion. I call this strategy, this, this strategy to undermine white racism uh, as, as uplift suasion. It was largely taught to black people by white abolitionists. And then black people basically started passing it down from generation to generation. And, and most black people have been taught <laughs> uh, that if you would only act better, then they will think better. If you only uplift them yourselves, then you can essentially persuade away white racist ideas. And what that fundamentally means, this very popular, potentially the most popular uh, strategy within and outside of the black community to undermine racist ideas, what it fundamentally says is that black people are partially responsible for the racist ideas that white people have about them. That you are responsible. Your negative behavior has caused it. So if you would only act better, they would think better about you. And to suggest that somehow... Black people are responsible um, that there's some truth to racist ideas, anti-black racist ideas, is to essentially express a racist idea. So that's the irony. This extremely popular strategy to undermine racist ideas that has circulated pervasively in the black community, let alone in liberal white communities, is based in a racist idea. And, and then we wonder why it has failed. Um, but what even is more striking is when somehow black individuals are able to act in an upstanding manner. It doesn't oftentimes persuade away racist ideas. What people say is, oh, you're extraordinary. You're not like those ordinary, inferior black people. Sounds pizzeria, telling you. Exactly. <laughs> you're, and you're extraordinary. Oh, my God, I've never met somebody like you. Right? And, 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 and so it's just striking how we still, and I think many people are finally beginning to realize the politics of respectability has failed miserably. Uh, the politics of respectability forces each, and individ, each individual black person to carry the entire race. <laughs> so you, you ever see black people walking around with their backs bent? It's because they're carrying the entire race <laughs> on their back, right? Um, 
And so hopefully at some point we'll, we'll eliminate this and, and stop using it. Um, uh, we can uh, open this up for questions now, but I want to ask you one last question. Um, a lot of people, when we think about race and racism, it feels like this huge unsolvable problem that we can never, ever fully tackle. But you have a, a more optimistic view of that. Um, what is that view? Do, is this a problem that we can actually solve? So um, I do think it's a problem we can solve. And, and I don't think that it's a problem we can solve because I'm, I can see the future. I, don't, uh, I, I think it's a problem that we can solve. I, I believe that we should believe that it's a problem we can solve because once we believe that it's impossible, it's guaranteed that we won't be able to solve it, right? And, and so I also, as a student of history, if, if this panel, if we would have been talking, we probably wouldn't be talking, but uh, if, if, if we would have been talking in 1860, uh, before the election of, of, of Abraham Lincoln, before South Carolina succeeded, um, or even afterwards, uh, we could have been talking about, can chattel slavery ever be ended? Right? Slaveholders uh, were the richest group of men, because they were mostly men, but 40% of them were women, as a new book, book has showed, the, the, the richest group of people in the world. The combined assets um, of enslaved people in 1860 were worth more than all other American assets combined. When, when you talk about the power of slaveholders and the wealth of slaveholders, um, you're talking about a collection of people and a collection of power that this nation has never before seen. And so to imagine that these extremely powerful people uh, who are so powerful and wealthy could lose their assets, <laughs> that slavery, which had lived in this country for 250 years uh, and was only continuing to, to, to become even more, quote, productive from the standpoint of slaveholders uh, and their wealth, could in five years be no more, at least in the case of chattel slavery, right? Uh, people would have thought you were crazy. I mean, it's impossible. It's too embedded. Uh, it's too historic. It's, there's so many powerful forces against it. And it's the same thing with Haiti, right? For those of you who aren't familiar with, with the Haitian Revolution in 1791, these enslaved people, uh, decided that they were going to rise up against their, their slave masters. Haiti was the most profitable colony in the world in 1791, the jewel of the French Empire. The British Empire, the Portuguese, all of the other colonial empires all wanted Haiti because it was so wealthy. And so to imagine that in 13 years that these enslaved people with no military training could defeat local masters and armies from Spain, England, and Brit in England in succession to win their freedom. People would have thought, that, I mean, that's just impossible. I mean, you know, I can go on and on with, with examples from history, even the American Revolution. If somebody would have thought these small, these 13 small, weak uh, uh, colonies or states, if you wanted to call them, could defeat the mighty British Empire, people would have thought, I mean, that's just crazy. Right? But it happened, and, and, and it happened because the people believed uh, it, it could happen, and, and, and they were committed to creating a different type of world for themselves. 
All right, we're going to open up the floor for questions, so please raise your hand. I see this gentleman here. Thank you. That was excellent. And um, I'm wondering, I just finished reading Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, and I think she did like an excellent job of defining racism as like a system of oppression as opposed to like a personal choice. It's like it's there, you benefit from it, or you don't. That's its purpose. You talked about the importance of defining racism, but, I, but I, unless I missed it, which is possible – I don't. I didn't hear your personal definition. Is there is there one that you would offer us? Like, how do you define racism? Sure. So racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> sure. A, a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. And anti-racism is pretty simple using the same terms. Anti-racism is a collection of anti-racist policies leading to racial, anybody want to take a guess? Equity that are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Thank you for this. This It's the most comprehensive talk I've seen on racism in my whole life. I really appreciate you. That's Um, that's because of Jamal. (laughs) do you differentiate racism from white supremacy and if you do how and why so I I see racism the way I understand the relationship between racism and and, and white supremacy is that the effect the result of racism those policies those inequities uh, those ideas is white supremacy right and so that's what happens right when you have a series of of, of racist policies, particularly pro-white racist policies, as most uh, racist policies are. It's going to lead to white supremacy. It's going to lead to a current uh, nation uh, in which people of color um, are growing in size, but their power, right, uh, particularly at a national level, and even in many states, uh, are not growing in size. Another way I, I understand white supremacy is the way in which white supremacy normalizes whiteness. Um, and that's when you really are supreme. Right? Even when you think of power, right? When you think of power, a absolute power that truly has power, you are not trying, you don't have to flex your muscles. Right? You don't have to um, continuously use violence or other forms to essentially subdue. You literally, like, your power is absolute. It's supreme. It's understood. It's considered to be normal. Um, In the way whiteness, as a result of white supremacy, which comes out of racism, has been normalized. Hi, I have two quick questions. Um, One is about allyship and really wanting you to speak to what you feel are the greatest missteps you see in the process of uh, anyone's desire to be an ally and what you believe that actually means. And then the second question is about internalized racism for folks of color and particularly folks in positions of power within institutions. What do you feel are the greatest um, opportunities for them as gatekeepers to really model anti-racism? So two questions. Sure. Um, so, you mind if I take the second one first? Okay. So, there's been pushback um, among uh, black folk in particular 
about this idea that we can internalize racism too. What I've found is some of the most forceful pushback has been black people in positions of power. And the reason why they've pushed back is because the way it's currently sort of conceived, um, when they, when a black person gets in a position of power and reproduces and maintains the same anti-black racist policies as their white predecessors, and they defend those policies with the same racist ideas as their white predecessors, we certainly don't call them racist in the way we did their white predecessors. So in anything, because of their color of their skin, they're given a pass, which then allows them right, to continuously do that, which is why they're actually empowered in those positions in the first place. And they imagine that all they essentially have to do is sit in those positions, because if they do, they're a credit to the race. But if we say, no, it's not enough for you to sit in those positions, that you have the power to either further racist or anti-racist policies, what are you going to do? It puts them in a completely different situation that they don't want to be in, right? Um, and, and so I think that people in positions of power, black people or people of color more broadly in positions of power, need to, obviously, if they're going to be anti-racist, uh, ensure that they are pushing and defending policies that, that, that create more racial um, equity. And to your first question in terms of allyship, I, I think that we've had many, and I, I suspect you're talking about white allies. Okay. Um, and I, one of the things that I think has happened is when allies, white allies, think about their goal, their goal has been to what? Be not racist, <laughs> right? And, and so what I'm arguing is that, no, your, your goal should be to, be to be anti-racist. Because if you're not striving to be anti-racist, then you're striving to be racist. And you're certainly not going to be an ally if you're what? If you're racist. Uh, and so I think it's critical uh, for people to, to, to essentially strive and for them to recognize, for allies to recognize that there's no in-between safe space neutrality in this struggle. Right? What are we doing? Either we're furthering um, and, and reproducing this unequal society, or we're part of the struggle against it. Thank you for uh, your several examples of how people overcame the unthinkable. Uh, one of the things about those examples is that there were very tangible ends, the end of slavery, the end of colonization. How do you recommend that we deal with things like implicit bias, these unconscious beliefs that are really hard for us to sometimes operationalize and even more so see in our settings? What are recommendations to really use anti-racist approaches to these things? So I think that I think one of the good things about this sort of emergence of notions of implicit and unconscious bias over the last, I guess it's been 20 years now, has, has been that it, it causes people to talk about race and racism, um, sometimes not even using the R word, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it, it, it opens the door for people uh, to have these discussions. I think one of the downsides of concepts of, of implicit and, and unconscious bias is that what causes a person to be biased? We, we don't have that conversation. Ideas. That's what causes them to be biased. So I, I think when, that's why I don't really write um, or speak on bias, whether implicit or, 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 or not, because to me I want to talk about the underlying 
what's underlying the bias itself, and that's ideas, right? I, and, 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 and I would also argue that if we talk about ideas, we can then see how those ideas are actually very overt, very explicit. But what happens is people don't recognize their own ideas as racist. And so I can ask anybody, why, for instance, is the black unemployment rate twice as high in this country as the white unemployment rate? There's only two ways they can answer that question. Either they can say there's something wrong with black workers or something right about white workers, which is an explicit expression of racist ideas, or they could say what? Racist policies. And so I think it's how we're asking the question can actually get people to see what's actually in their minds and what's underlying this bias that has become implicit because we're not asking the right questions. So I liked the concept that you talked about around assimilation. And what I'm curious about is what do you think it looks like to be, because we interact with so many systems and institutions, what do you think it looks like to be successful and black without feeding into the concept of assimilation? Um, so I think more or less, first and foremost, to, to be yourself, to be who you want to be in the world. And if you create a standard that you want to measure yourself by as a black person, uh, then that standard should not be unattainable. What I, what I mean by that is if you, as a dark-skinned or even a brown-skinned person, have this standard that white skin is beautiful, you've now created a standard that's completely unattainable, right? And, and so instead of creating a standard that is actually attainable, um, which is closer to your, your skin complexion, right? I would also say that black people, like other group of people, should recognize that what makes us equal to white people and other racial groups is actually not because of the great black people. And there's some great black people in this room that I could point out. Um, is it's because of our imperfections. It's our imperfections that actually make us human and thereby equal. So be yourself. Now, the problem is if, you, if you're yourself, if you try, if you essentially be yourself, which means that at times you're going to, quote, ex- exhibit black stereotypes. At times you're going to do, you're going to have your lazy day. At times you're going to be human. What's going to happen, obviously, is racist people are going to generalize you and that individual behavior and then potentially punish you as a result. And so then the question becomes, fundamentally, for us as we're navigating these institutions, is it better for us to be ourselves? Or is it better for us to essentially continuously try to wear the mask to essentially ascend? And we have to make those decisions for ourselves. I've had a pretty difficult road through the academy because I've refused <laughs> to kowtow in, in certain ways that other young black academics do. And, and it's been an extremely difficult road for me. And, and I wouldn't sort of, I wouldn't suggest it on anyone. But at the same time, I'm happy. And I'm happy with who I am. Thank you. Just uh, quickly on being ourselves, I want to say that in California, there is 
pending legislation called the Crown Act, which will make discrimination against hairstyles illegal. Which I think is, it sounds like... Are they going to do that at the airports, too? (laughs) You ain't lying, boy. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. You'll have to come to LAX and test it out. All the way in 2019, huh? Yeah. You're just not getting around to that. Earlier today, I got a chance to hear Tara Westover talk from her novel, Educated, about how she learned about slavery. She learned about it in rural Idaho from a book on her father's mantle that was talking about slave owners having such a hard time. Whoa, whoa, whoa is the slaveholders. Earlier this week, I saw something on the internet talking about how slaveholders actually got reparations before slavery was outlawed, something I didn't know, and I consider myself a fairly well-read person. So my question to you today is, what place does the truth play in creating an anti-racist society? So I think the truth is central. Racist ideas have, have long been built on lies. Racist ideas need believers, not thinkers. Thinkers typically look for the truth. Believers are liable to believe anything, right? And, and so I think the truth is absolutely central. And you're absolutely correct um, about slaveholders, you know, receiving reparations. Um, and actually, um, I guess it was probably supposed to be pub in the Atlantic. I mean, I actually wrote a piece in the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> it's allowed. I'll allow it. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, earlier this week, uh, which was framed around a speech Abraham Lincoln gave on December 1st, 1862, with the Emancipation Proclamation pending in four weeks, trying to, from his standpoint, unify the country because so many Northerners were against the Emancipation Proclamation. And so in his attempt to bring these people together um, and to create this compromise among friends, to quote him directly, uh, he essentially offered... Uh, in his address to Congress, a 13th Amendment. And that 13th Amendment would first and foremost um, make it such that each state would need to emancipate uh, their enslaved black people by January 1st, 1900. That's not a misprint. By January 1st, 1900. And those slaveholders would be compensated for emancipating all of those enslaved people. And, which I didn't talk about in in the piece, black people who would like to leave America and go back to Africa, they would pay their way. That was his proposal. And essentially, that was compensating, right, slaveholders who had long, as you sort of mentioned, been projecting themselves as the victims. This is a war of northern aggression that we are victimized, as Southern, as South Carolina secessionists wrote when they succeeded from Union by abolitionists, that we are the true victims. Um, and, and as a result, Lincoln was like, okay, you're a victim. Let's compensate you. Let's repair you. Let's give you reparations by, by compensating you for these enslaved people. You know, we, we know, I'm sure for those of you who haven't heard about that, um, that was the second time he did that because he also made that case in his first address to, con- to Congress in 1861. But we haven't heard about that, right, because it was pretty much rejected and the Emancipation Proclamation uh, came forth. 
But that's how close this country was to black people being enslaved another 37 years and all of those rich white people receiving wealth for, for emancipating their slaves. I mean, can you imagine how close we were to that? Mind blown. Um, final question right here. Um, I echo everyone here to thank you both. Uh, the question I have has to do with, um, with healing. I'm from the city of Pittsburgh, where June of this month, we marked the year of the untimely death of Antoine Rose, 17-year-old young black man, exemplary, shot in the back, unarmed by a police officer. Um, it was striking and deeply painful amidst the, the case and the verdict of the police officer. And so my question to you, and this story, as we all know, is not, a, it's not a uncommon story across our nation. So my question to you is, as black people and as people of color are pursuing and, and fighting for the upholding of anti-racist ideals towards racial equity, are there tenets from which one could also draw a sense of healing and a capability of dealing with pain while at the same time you're resisting from which pain is often generated in the first place? I think that um, what more and more people in the movement are calling self-care, I would argue that that is absolutely essential. Um, And I didn't really write about this in in How to Be an Anti-Racist, but I sort of spoke to it indirectly, that it's absolutely essential to being, to being anti-racist. And, and, and the reason being is because if you are truly going to be a part of this struggle, you have to be a part of this struggle for some time, right? You know, you can't essentially um, uh, organize yourself into the grave, right? Mm. You literally have to figure out a way to um, ensure that you're putting your health first, right? And, and I sort of had to learn this uh, in particular because for a time I didn't put my health first and it led to me being diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, um, which I had to deal with last year. Um, and that sort of showed me <laughs> just how important, right, um, it was for each of us to ensure um, that we, as we're sort of doing this type of work, and as we're literally consuming um, and engaged and really relating to the trauma, because if you're truly, you know, somebody who's working on Antoine, uh, Antoine's case, like you are almost feeling the pain of his family, right? Um, and so constantly sort of feeling this pain, the pain of racism. You know, we have people right now who are feeling the pain of those children in those camps at the border, right? And so at the same time, if you're feeling this pain constantly, like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? What are you doing to release yourself um, to ensure that that pain is not going to essentially kill you? Um, And I think that's absolutely critical, because if we don't do it, um, then we're going to have another untimely death. And there's been so many untimely deaths Um, of people, as we know, who have been engaged in this type of work. Well, I want to thank you guys for attending and being an active and captive audience. Please, a round of applause for Dr. Kimberly.
Abram X. Kendi is founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. His latest book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, was released in August. Jamel Hill covers sports, race, politics, and culture for The Atlantic. She hosts the Spotify podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Their conversation was held in June of 2019 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.